0: Welcome to Scream Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. This house has no secrets.
1: What do you say to my scandalous suggestion? No one must ever find out. Tell her everything. I can't. How long have you known? Don't make trouble. They'll find out. How? They'll find out somehow. No! Leave
0: this house and never come back! I feel a shaking of the ground.
1: Abby is back, and we just saw episode one of season five. I read once that they spend about a million British pounds an episode to produce this show, and I totally believe it. I mean, this show is so well done, it's ridiculous. (laughs) From the costumes to the sets, the tremendous ensemble cast, I just, I really, I can't say enough good things about this show.
0: Well, that makes me laugh because the show is, is so much about form over substance that it doesn't surprise me that they spend a million dollars on how everything looks rather than the storylines that it
1: tells. I remember when it first started and became a huge raging hit. And um, there were many articles published about the fact that Julian Fellows had actually discovered the diary of one of his friend's grandmothers in one of these huge English castles. And it contained that story of the Turkish diplomat who has an affair with one of the ladies of the house and dies in her bed where the servants witness them dragging the dead body out of the room, which became the inspiration for the famous episode in season
0: one with Pamuk. I think that was from uh, the Highclere Castle was where that event in actuality took place. That's where it's filmed,
1: and supposedly Julian Fellows is friends with the current owners, but yeah, I read it, it's been in the same family since 1679, um, and while we're on that family, I know that when I watched this first episode of season five, he calls one of the dogs, and he called the dog Isis.
0: They say that's why that dog had to die. Did you know
1: how the dogs got their names? No, nor do I care, but go ahead. <laughs> the other dog's name is Pharaoh. And so I found this piece of trivia that one of the earls of Highclere Castle was one of the two people to discover the tomb of King Tut. And so as a nod to the castle's connection to Egypt, they named the dogs Pharaoh and Isis.
0: I love the way they take periods of history. You know, it is true that some of the um, large estates opened up their homes during World War One. I. I read that Highclere Castle, where it's filmed,
1: um, they truly did open their doors. Supposedly they found thank you notes from some of the soldiers who had stayed there
0: in the house. I mean, I love that you know, the richness of the british history is 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 amazing. the guy who who they've brought in, who makes sure that everybody stands exactly the way that you were required to stand back then, and that you know, you never shake hands and that these women are always wearing their gloves and all of the things that make it true to. Uh, to Edwardian manners. You know, you did that very well, but he would never tip his hat that way. He would tip his hat straight up and straight down.
1: (laughs) And I find it so fascinating that so many people are watching
0: and looking for anachronisms and bloopers. I sort of started to read about manners after watching the first episode and then having seen how important manners are into the entire uh, fabric of the show. And basically what they said is that if you could live within the manner rules, meaning so many rules of what you could and couldn't do and could and couldn't say and could not couldn't be, then you were able to show a moral, moral fiber um, that entitled you to sit at the top of the pyramid heap. And in a way, I sort of got it, you know, and I sort of, I, I think that manners, we've lost a good sense of our manners, and maybe that's why the show is so popular. It's the most popular show ever in the history of Masterpiece Theater, and there have been some pretty popular shows. And also 16 Emmy nominations for the 64th Premier Emmy Awards in 2012, 16 Emmy nominations, which is also, I think I think it's going to be one of the most, most um, decorated shows that way. So there is something in all of us that likes that sort of, uh, set the parameters for me, and I'll try to live within them <laughs> position.
1: And yet it sets it up so beautifully, um, much as the show Upstairs, Downstairs did yeah, too, yeah. where, yeah. you know, this season starts in 1924 where you've got the shifting power structures.
0: It's the post-war world. But, you know, here's the difference between Upstairs, Downstairs, and this. There's two differences. One is the attention to detail, and the other is the cast. I mean... I will watch anything that has Maggie Smith. Her timing is so impeccable. I mean, look, the cast is amazing. Okay, Mm -hmm. who do you like better? I'm going to play a little game, okay? Who do you like better, Robert Crowley or Carson? Carson. Oh, wow, really? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I would marry Crowley for sure. I just think he's great. Well,
1: I think Carson is such a great character to oh rule my God. the he's downstairs the best, world. But
0: also, Jim Carter plays this role so well.
1: A role that I saw Hugh Bonville in recently is, did you see the movie Lost in Austin?
0: No. Do I need to?
1: Well, it was fun. It was. It's long. Okay, all right. Now,
0: ready? Continue with your okay. game. Okay. Okay, we're going to keep playing our game. Okay, Anna Bates or Lady Edith? Oh <laughs>
1: Oh, Anna, for sure. Poor Lady Edith. She's tortured by her sisters. She falls for that guy that had one arm, and the family intercedes at the altar and says, you know, that, that the guy's too old for her and shooes away the groom. No, And then she falls for another guy who looks suspiciously just like him, but his
0: wife, what, is she locked up? There's something about her that she seems to like that role, meaning her personality, it fits very well that with the, oh, woe is me, everybody else has it better than me. Some I don't really have a lot of empathy for her. And when she starts the fire... I mean, she
1: tosses the book with her lover's name into the fireplace and almost burns down all of know, Downton Abbey. Oh but-
0: I know. But also, you know, they actually did actually light a fire in the castle. I think that was sort of dumb. Um. <laughs> yeah. I anyway, say, though,
1: I liked the storyline they introduced, where she yeah. had become a writer. You know, because I thought, okay, she's showing more hutzpah. The whole fire, um, scene I thought was great because it was reminiscent of Pamuk the Turk from season one, where again it's one of those moments where upstairs and downstairs they're caught you know, um, where who's in whose room and which servants have witnessed who coming and going and who gets fired as a consequence of being upstairs when they should be downstairs. Um, so I thought that was, it was well done.
0: Um, okay. Now ready. You have to pick Mrs. Padmore or Daisy Mason. Mrs. Patmore. I love her. Oh my I really god, I really love do. Daisy. <laughs> I love Daisy. I love
1: Daisy. I mean it's okay. a hard choice there, but I think Mrs. Patmore so funny and I don't know if you ever saw the video clip where they were interviewing the actors and they were talking about what it was like when they first auditioned for the show. And the actress who plays Mrs. Patmore, you know with that crazy orange hair, and um you know that she said she came in and they said are you auditioning for upstairs or downstairs and she says with her fabulous accent she's like look at me which <laughs> what do you think <laughs> yeah I'm you're talking for? I think you're
0: talking about Leslie Nicole I'm pretty sure yes yeah, thank yeah. you yes yeah.
1: uh-huh. and um just she's a fabulous character okay now but guess, guess one the, who by the way uh-huh. was
0: offered the part Elizabeth McGovern plays Cora Crowley. You know, imported from America to be to bring the money and back into the into the homestead. Okay, guess mm-hmm. who was offered the part before her.
1: You know, I just read this Gillian Anderson. Yes, and of your very own Jillian Anderson. Film.
0: Okay, do you yes. think she's kicking herself now?
1: I would say, yeah. I have to say that when I first saw the very first episode and the first five minutes, I don't know if I was in a bad mood or I was tired, but I thought it moved kind of slowly, and I well, didn't. It, think it, that's that it because was it
0: does it does move slowly, but somehow when we turn it on, we all tend to relax, take a breath, and we're, we allow it to draw us in in, you know, what is no longer the way you know, shows normally do. Well,
1: now I feel like the plot moves along at such a rapid pace where we're already in 1924. We went through a war pretty quickly. Um, but it wasn't until, I don't know, I came down with the flu and I just could not get out of bed. And somebody said, just give it another chance. And I started binge watching on Netflix. And, yeah. Well,
0: and I hooked. think it is the kind of show, by the way, you need to binge watch because you have to transform yourself to that era. And in order to mm-hmm. do it, you have to clear your mind of what's happening around you. So it's better to watch, but I binge watch everything I watch. So, for me, it works just fine. But my very favorite character of all the characters, and the one who breaks my heart when I see his face on the screen, is.
1: Huh.
0: Bates. Um,
1: Bates. 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 I do love Bates, although I feel like. I was so glad when we finally made it through the plot of Bates being accused of murder. And now Uh, once we finally got through the first murder plot, we've already ended up in the throes of a second murder plot. And I thought, poor Anna and Bates. They can't even be reunited for a minute without another, you know, terrible, terrible thing befalling them.
0: You know what's great about this show is it really shows how the industrialization, how bringing machinery into people's lives Stopped enabling them to live that kind of life. You know, even the minute the phone arrived, everything was different. You know, mm-hmm. it really does take over a way of life. It changes a lifestyle, and mm-hmm. um, and now they're going to bring the radio in this season. All of those things mean that the isolation of and the enormity of community in, in those estates is lost. You, you know, you can no longer maintain this isolated sense of community where there's really no other opportunity or where the townspeople can't learn about other things, et cetera. So, uh, you know, it really is showing how, um, I, you know, I, the minute electricity came into everybody's lives, uh, so then did the dynamic of globalization. We, you know, we really stopped having, you know, isolated communities. And I don't know if it's for the better to tell you the truth. I really don't.
1: Well, it's interesting because, I mean, as you know, um, I spent many years in the back bay of Boston, and I remember that Isabella Stewart Gardner, who was one of the great art patrons of the city, who ended up giving her villa as an art museum to the city of Boston, she refused to switch over in that era. And she said people look better um, by candlelight, and electricity does nothing <laughs> for anyone's looks. And there were rumors that she couldn't afford it because at that point um, she got socked with a huge tax bill for not paying tax on so much art she had imported from Europe. But I remember a couple years ago in Boston, they had a terrible power outage where a generator blew up and um, all the city lights went out. And so some people in that neighborhood lit candles. And as I was walking home that night, I thought she really had a point so that it was beautiful. Um, via candlelight. But again, it just reminded me of a great scene in Downton Abbey where they get the first electrical lighting. And the look of skepticism that Maggie Smith gave it as she looks up at the chandelier, you know, it was almost as good as that scene where she first sat down in a swivel chair. And, um, you know, the, um, Matthew Crawley was talking about how it was an invention brought over from America. And, again, her skepticism of all things American, including Lady Cora. Um, but I, I wanted to mention, too, Julian Fellows, when he wrote the character for Maggie Smith, it's actually the same character he wrote for her in Gosford Park.
0: I, you know, Maggie Smith is very at home in that entire place you know
1: and I feel like for decades now I've been watching her play the same age but uh, back in the 90s I saw her on stage in the west end of London in Edward Albee's Three Tall Women I don't know if you ever saw that play but it was so heavenly watching someone as good as Maggie Smith playing this character having a conversation with herself at three different ages in her life um, you know, that that kind of, I read in a review once, they called it dowager grandeur, where she's just born for that kind of part.
0: She turns to somebody at some point and she says, nothing succeeds like excess. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, they're giving her amazing lines, no question, but her delivery yeah. of them is 100% equal to the lines she's given. And
1: it's incredible. Like in this last episode, where she said that line about principles are like prayers, noble, of course, but awkward at a party. (laughs) I thought, I mean, she does, she delivers these lines. And you're, you're. uh, your favorite daisy there when she said, you know, I've got the brain of a kipper. I thought the dialogue in the show is just so well delivered and well written.
0: You know, say what you want about Julian, who, by the way, does not have thick skin and doesn't take any critique, you know, criticism well. But one of the things, he was accused of plagiarism. They said that he borrowed ideas from Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. Uh, after the uh, first season, and I went back and sort of glanced through the plot lines of the first season searching for where I could find little women, and I didn't see it anywhere. Also, by the way, um, Sophie uh, McShira, who's going to, who plays Daisy, who, and I just love her, is going to appear in the new Cinderella movie as one of the ugly stepsisters, Drizella. Um, yes, and I think yeah.
1: um, one of the other ladies um, is playing Cinderella.
0: Well, you know, and then I couldn't help but think of the royal family today. In the first season, um, Crowley is trying to explain. Uh, he was having a conversation about you can't fire anybody on the staff because this is their life and their livelihood. And then what would become of them if you did, that part of the obligation is to keep everybody on the estate employed. Matthew wanted to get rid of um, of his manservant, and Crowley said, you know, your obligation as the head of this entire family, are you going to fire everybody? Then what will they do? This is where this is how they live their life. You know, it was a great explanation. And then I started to think about Kate Middleton and how she and the prince... Uh, you know, don't have a lot of people working for them. I think they have one nanny and a housekeeper or something. But anyway, they, they're certainly not big on staff, and they certainly are living a more natural life. But there was something to the fact that all of these people kept were kept employed by these families, and mm-hmm. that that has changed. And that probably the queen now has had some adjustments to make in her own rights when, when the upstairs-downstairs started to crumble.
1: And it's so interesting, too, that... Um... The character of Carson, who almost seems more invested in upholding the existing social structure. Oh, totally. Than, well, oh, than oh by the way, he, he clawed Grantham. his
0: way to the top of the very structure. No offense, if I, were, if I were him, I would want to keep it too. I mean, he did really well, you know? <laughs>
1: And yet he's so loyal to Earl Grantham. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting, too, because even in 1924, when they're talking about how the new prime minister is part of the Labor Party and was born into a working class family, and they ask Carson and not the Earl to be the chairman of this village war memorial committee, they ask him while he's serving the tea, you know, and they're still giving him their well, that tea already, orders. About, that all,
0: yes, that already sends everybody down to a... Uh, to a tailspin. But the other thing is these servants knew every single thing. Like Anna is very, very close to Mary and knows everything about Mary's life. And Mary will often confide in her as if she were a BFF. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly not her house, her housemaid. but very rarely does Anna tell Mary anything about her life. I don't, in today's world where I believe the best of friendships is an equal sharing or close to equal sharing and vulnerability to each other, you know, I I just can't imagine it. I can't imagine taking so much from somebody and giving so very little.
1: Well, it is interesting because it almost seems like Anna is the one upholding the morality, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and it is true that Mary confides in her more than she certainly does with her sister. It's interesting, too, that there's definitely a structure to the manners of the downstairs world, you know, that they all stand before they're seated for dinner. Right. And it's, it's always an interesting episode to me when someone comes visiting with their sir and how there's a difference between, um, you know, the servants that come to visit um, Downton Abbey versus the staff that's already there. Um, I read a book last year, and it was about all the famous visitors to the White House, the famous, the infamous, the notorious. Um, And it was very interesting because they said that when Queen Elizabeth had come for one of her visits— That supposedly she and um, Prince Philip were, you know, delightful, but apparently the White House staff could not abide the staff that came over with the Queen and her husband um, because they all expected to be waited on.
0: I'm going to tell a little story. (laughs) Oh, good. Okay. (laughs) I actually, a company that I started, we employed Her Royal Highness Princess Michael of Kent. You may have heard of her. Her husband is like, they live at Kensington Palace, but they're the first in the line that have to make. Their own money. So anyway, we employed her to represent our brand. I'm not going to say what it was. Doesn't really matter. But when she would come to New York and I'd meet with her, I was told that when when she came that I had to end each sentence with "Your Royal Highness." Well, ADD just words that
1: I could imagine rolling (laughs) off your tongue. Oh yeah, just for sure,
0: right? But also, I'm an ADD girl. I think really fast and I speak really fast. And to remind myself at the end of each sentence to say "Your Royal Highness" wasn't going to happen. So we had a couple of meetings, and (laughs) it was like. Seriously, plus we had to meet at her hotel and she only drinks champagne and it was drama drama. So, and I had my little Diet Coke. And finally, I thought we won the war. She's on my territory. I don't have to say that. I don't have to do that. And I didn't do it. And I have to say she didn't say anything. But there is definitely a distance that that uh that the royal family still takes on that's very very you belong over there, and I belong over here, even though I was paying her paycheck. You know, anyway, that was mm-hmm. a little a little sidebar.
1: I was so hoping for more with the Americans in yeah. Mountain Abbey. You know, when I heard that Shirley MacLaine was going to make a guest appearance, I was so excited about that episode and felt kind of let down because I feel like the only nationality that comes off worse on BBC specials um, worse than the Irish would be the Americans. Yeah. <laughs> Shirley MacLaine, I, I liked the fact that she was allowed to sing at one of those parties. I thought Paul Giamatti's character was odd, and even Lady Cora, there's something about her voice that drives me up the wall. Okay,
0: but um, I I have to, well, I, well, Lady Cora, she needs you know a little eye lift too, but at any rate, I have to say, I love the way the Americans come in and the sheer... You know, oppositeness of how they both behave. I think it it speaks well to uh, to the frontier on the other side of the pond called America. You know, I loved that she was this free spirit who said whatever she wanted, and she just didn't. You know, that Shirley MacLaine just didn't adhere to the to the manners and the and the parameters set up. I thought it was great. I liked it.
1: Well. I was hoping for that, but it, to me it seemed like one of the most humorless roles that Shirley MacLaine has ever taken on. Oh my God, um, yeah, so I, I thought she this... was,
0: you didn't think it was, I thought she was very, I mean, she made me smile. She didn't make you smile?
1: Not in the way that Shirley MacLaine normally does, so maybe I expected too much of a counterweight to Maggie Smith, because the setup, I think, is brilliant, that all these, um, you know, Lady Mary and Lady Edith, and back when we still had Lady Sybil before she took up with the Irish chauffeur, um, you know, that they're half American, and of course, you know, Lady Mary wants to be the ladiest of them all, and yet she she is, you know, 50% American. So when her grandmother shows up, played by Shirley MacLaine, I was hoping for more levity. And instead, she just seemed like she was squinting at everyone and
0: low energy. But it was also written by Julian. He doesn't know, he doesn't know us. He doesn't understand the nuance of our humor, which, by the way, what a shame, because we are fabulously funny over on this side of the pond, so... <laughs> <laughs> the, other thing, the other thing we have to talk about is the table. So many scenes take place around the table. And apparently, you know, the, the, preparing these tables takes hours and hours and hours. And mm-hmm. because they say grace before starting dinner, it's considered to be the Lord's table. And so it's, it, it's, it's almost a metaphor for the morality of their life. So if you can get through the table using the right utensils and everything else, it shows the discipline of your own morality. So there's something that happens around the table that's bigger than just eating a meal. And Mm -hmm. I think that's sort of cool. I know that the actors have trouble though serving because they have to serve, you know, very carefully. And apparently there are a lot of trolleys and things on the floor. So they're constantly tripping and... I cannot even imagine getting those around all the camera
1: equipment and the level of detail because even the costumes where it is down to every bit of lace and every cuff link. And um, you know, I I heard that some of the pieces are actually from the 1910s and the 1920s, and they're so fragile they can't be
0: cleaned. Yes. So the actor said that some
1: of them don't smell very good. But it's but they sure look good. I I
0: love don't you love the costumes? I do, I love them. It is incredible.
1: And I know last year I was in San Antonio, and they were touring. So they were at the McNay Institute in San Antonio. And um, uh, last month I was at the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina, and there was a big sign up uh, there saying the Downton Abbey costumes were coming to the Biltmore Estate. Oh, that's nice. Um, Yeah. But the the level of detail is just incredible, as is the stunning cinematography, where I feel as though every – shot is framed perfectly, you know, so well, it's, if they are serving at the table. It's also
0: easy to do that in that environment, no offense, but, you know, uh, you know what an amazing backdrop to be able to shoot something or anything. An
1: amazing backdrop, and yet I can imagine it being complicated in terms of not capturing um, a piece of equipment or another camera in the frame yeah. or something from the modern era like a plane going overhead, um, but I read that the downstairs world had to be recreated in a London studio because obviously... The kitchen in this house has been upgraded for the modern tenants.
0: It is a wonderful, wonderful place. Also, it's now a huge tourist attraction. It's such a testament
1: that they have created such a special world, which is the goal of every TV show that people want to tune in each week and literally visit the castle. Where right. It's exactly.
0: Exactly. Uh, before
1: we sign off, one other thing that I just had me so intrigued is I remember reading about how the actresses were allowed to wear only minimal makeup because makeup in that day and age would have been considered so garish and you know talk about going against the manners of the day um you know and yet they all look stunning
0: well you know i guess when you look like that you don't have to wear a lot of makeup i clearly could never be on the show but
1: Uh, there's (laughs) no way i could be not even downstairs
0: (laughs) all right so we hope we do hope that you'll all take you know take the time to watch it and enjoy it and here's to the people on the other side of the pond and to their downton abbey Oh, what a gift they've given to us.